0: You
1: are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman.
0: And I'm Neil Lawrence.
1: And today, Neil, I wanted to take a minute to talk about some really interesting articles or or, or maybe just writing that's been going on in the space. Professor Michael Jordan put out an interesting blog post or, or article on Medium, as did Professor Rodney Brooks, talking about not talking about the the hard science that's happening, but talking about how we're talking about it. If it if that sort of makes sense. But I I really loved this idea that Jordan picked up on and was talking about uh, the difference between artificial intelligence and intelligence infrastructure and how we think about these ideas and and really the the importance of the words that we use to talk about them.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, actually, as I was looking for the links for this, I realized that that this episode and and maybe some other stuff we'll talk about next episode could be just seen as cyber-stalking Tom Dietrich because he's been (laughs) tweeting. He's been tweeting all these, I realized. Um, but uh, yeah, and he's actually someone great to follow on Twitter in this space. He's a great guy for highlighting these things. But yeah, so first of all, this, um the Medium post by Mike Jordan, which is Artificial Intelligence, the Revolution Hasn't Happened Yet. And I think it reflects a lot of the things we've sort of been talking about on talking machines. But he uh, does a great job, really, of structuring it and pulling it together. And of course, he's a arguably one of the leading world experts in machine learning. And I guess that's part of the theme of it is, he's pointing out that uh, AI isn't really uh, the same thing as machine learning and expectations are high for AI. And I think a separation we've talked about in the past is that between AI and data science. And I think that that comes strongly through in uh, Mike's post. And in particular, he mentioned an example of um, when his wife was pregnant uh, and they had an ultrasound and during the scan, they suggested maybe there was a raised risk for Down syndrome. And so they were suggesting amniocentesis. And uh, amniocentesis does have, I think actually you can detect Down syndrome from the blood now, but those days you couldn't. Amniocentesis involves, I think, uh, removing some amniotic fluid to look at the... uh,
1: Yeah. It can be dangerous for the fetus because of the sort of disruption. Yeah. Right?
0: And so there's a one in 300 chance, according to Mike, of a miscarrying due to the uh, uh, amniocentesis. So it's only recommended when people are at high risk. And what Mike noticed, or he um, found out that the, the increased risk was associated with white spots. On the scan, and he did some investigation in his own time, found out that the scan that that idea was taken from was a lower-resolution scan done in the UK. And uh, this um, scan was high-resolution. And he speculated, perhaps, that you you were getting some false positives here, which uh, seemed to be borne out, certainly by the operator's experience. Obviously, it's an anecdotal story rather than a statistical one. But it's a very believable one. We see this all the time. The change in a sensing... A sensing measurement. We don't have, we have statistics. I mean, there's another example, a good example uh, in the UK is there's a lot of question marks around cardiac disease risk, because uh, I think it's called Q risk in the UK. The data for that is is quite old now, and the population has changed. And, you know, people are unsure about how well calibrated that is, uh, but it becomes a de facto score. So data sets change over time. Mike's really talking about all the things you need around these systems. So he talks about intelligence augmentation. He talks about intelligence infrastructure as terms we should think of. Now, he also, he says, we'll use the phrase human-imitative AI to refer to the aspiration for AI emulating humans. That's something I like to call anthropomorphic intelligence because it really then captures it. And I think that he's highlighting this 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 confusion, this blending of... Uh, AI as a term to mean some technologies we've got that yeah. might help in medical cases and conflating that with AI as a term to emulate what we do.
1: To recreate human human intelligence. Yeah, he, he argues really, beautifully for thinking of what we sort of think of in the public sphere as AI, of, of doing some some differentiation in that, figuring it out, pulling it apart, and, and thinking of the actual core of the science here and a lot of the work that's being done right now as creating a new branch of perhaps engineering, right? As opposed to thinking of it as this anthropomorphic human intelligence, those sorts of questions. Um, I think it's a fascinating idea and something that would really help the public conversation.
0: Yeah, I think it's vital. And actually, um, any company that isn't doing this is going to get nowhere with AI. I can mm-hmm. assure you of that because it's all the infrastructure you need, just like every other revolution, depended on the nuts and bolts. Sometimes we call this internally like the plumbing, Yeah, how things connect together and making sure things connect safely and making sure that when um, data changes, models are updated. And I think engineering is a good term. It's an evolving stage of engineering. I I like some of the things he says. He uses some good analogies around, uh, just quoting, did civil engineering develop by envisaging the creation of an artificial carpenter or bricklayer? Yeah, no. I mean, it's quite funny. Um, Then um, what he's really saying there is, I mean, if you go back, and I always like to look to history for inspiration, early engineering, the processes weren't always, you know, there's, big disasters in the UK from badly engineered bridges, investigations had to take place in order to understand the right practices of how you do that. And I I think that he's really sort of saying, he's highlighting some of the areas where we need that. By the way, I'm just apropos of that. Another paper I really like that maps a lot with thinking that we've been doing in my group, but it's um, from the general Berkeley team, is this a Berkeley view of systems challenges for AI. He doesn't actually mention it, I think, in this post, but it's covering more from a technical side, a lot of the things that we'll need, like explainable decisions, secure enclaves, dealing with adversarial learning, and and systems research. By the way, the interface of systems and ML, I think, is a super important area. Systems people are used to the everyday of delivering on this, and bridging into the systems community is a super important part of delivering some of the engineering structure. But as Mike points out, mapping into the sort of social sciences as well, as he'd put, he puts it, this must be done within the context of evolving societal, ethical and legal norms. So so that involves an ongoing dialogue in society. And certainly there's institutions set up to help drive that. But I think one of the things that um, Mike's sort of pushing back against is the over-focus on things like the singularity, that draws attention away from the very real problems we're facing today. And he also he has a nice run through with the, this story, which uh, I think we'll come back to John McCarthy, um, who coined the term and, and, and what the context of where the term was coined. And we'll talk in a bit about what Rodney Brooks says about that. And we sort of see that in some sense, it was almost an accidental term, it seems, according to Rodney at any rate.
1: Right. Because in this post by Rodney Brooks, he delves a lot more into where this term comes from. And it's from this, Probably many of you know about it. It's from this, I think it was a workshop at Dartmouth in the 50s, and they just sort of needed something to call it. I think the line is drawn directly from the title of the workshop, A Proposal for the Dartmouth Summer Research Project on Artificial Intelligence, right? And that's sort of where we see it first, coming up with a fast name to describe what the research project was going to be.
0: Yeah. So the um, yeah Rodney's essay, which is on his blog, which is another great blog, lots of interesting thinking. And, and Rodney is, for, I mean, he's the godfather of robotics. He's uh, really a sort of um, key person in the evolution of the field of robotics, founded several robotics co- companies uh, that are sort of household names. So he's been working in this field for a long time. I would say sort of, well, he mentions some of the, some of his work, sort of going back to 1992 and, and earlier. What I think is interesting about this is it's more in a sort of a, it's more of a, it's more of a polemic style, I would say, um, which uh, I quite enjoy. I mean, Mike, I think, is also making a point. Mike's, I think probably uh, if you got Mike and Rodney together, they would strongly agree about a lot of their shared positions. But but Rodney is more focusing on the use of the term and, and, and how it's misleading um, perhaps the public. What I'm excited about, to be honest, is the quality of the discussions we're starting to get. So this is within sort of nine, ten days of each other. Super interesting pieces by experts which are getting picked up.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, we'll have links to Professor Jordan's article and also to Professor Brooks' article on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's question on Talking Machines is about books and other places to find ideas around the these topics that we talk about. Andrew Ng's new book, Machine Learning Yearning, is publishing chapters to an email list of interested people. And, and I'm on that list, and I suggest that if you are interested, too, that you sign up for it. It's It's really fascinating stuff. Our listener asks, is there a good book to read about the history of these ideas that's perhaps less focused on the computer science and more about the people or the characters. I'm going to jump in on this one because you know that I have a favorite that is sort of the the reason that we started this show is the book Talking Nets, which I found absolutely fascinating. As a journalist looking at this field and reporting on it, the book is a series of interviews with people who have been doing the foundational thinking in this area for decades. It's just really good. It's really interesting. Jeff Hinton tells some fabulous and hilarious stories about his life, which you should read it for no other reason than than that. But that's, I think that's my favorite one. Do you have a favorite one, Neil?
0: I, I, I actually, I have to read Talking Nets. Uh, I haven't read it yet. I should, I should read it's it. It's good. So, so uh, a couple I've got which are just ones I've been reading recently, and I wouldn't necessarily say go out and buy, but intrigued me because they've got some really interesting people involved. Is The Mechanical Mind in History, that's edited by Husbands Holland and Wheeler. And it has all sorts of super cool people in there contributing, including Horace Barlow, member of that Ratio Club we keep talking about, Donald Mickey, who um, was at um, Bletchley Park with Turing and Good and then went on to be a, a leading um, figure in, in University of Edinburgh, was the PhD supervisor of Andrew Blake and many others. Uh, did I mention Margaret Bowden, who's a leading cognitive scientist? Really, uh, I mean, and those are just some of the contributors. And that's, but that's an edited volume, so th- maybe some people find them dissatisfying if you're looking for a narrative history. I find them great when you're, when you're just looking, mashing around. Another one I got in that spirit, which I think is so critical, is Colossus, which is the secret of Bletchley Park's code-breaking computers. Now, that is, again, it's an edited volume by Jack Copeland, but it's got so much material. It's 2006 it was published. It's got so much material about what was going on. And and from people who were there, I just flicked it open, and one of the chapters is Of Men and Machines, Code-Breaking and Colossus. I mean, it's just uh, filled with interesting stories. It's not a single narrative, though, I'd say. It's about breaking the um, German High Commands Code, uh, the Lawrence cipher. That's Lorenz, L-O-R-E-N-Z, not L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E, which they had to do with early digital machines. So one of the things that in Rod Brooks' thing that we were just talking about, he mentions a paper by Turing of 48. Turing was able to write that paper because he'd seen digital machines created at Bletchley Park and he had the theory and he knew this was all possible. But He wasn't allowed to tell anyone about it because it was top secret.
1: Yeah. And I think that that's really interesting that you said that it's not, it's not one narrative. It's a bunch of different people who are there. I think that helps you to sort of get away from the history is written by the victors kind of thing, especially with Wikipedia. Um, so if you, you know, read widely, read deeply, that'll help to give you a variety of ideas and, and you can sort of see a fuller picture of what the path has been and who these people
0: were. But of course, it's not very helpful if someone's looking for one book just to catch up quickly. Um,
1: no. Well, yes. The, but, uh, the problem of one book.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 but I think, I think there's gonna, I, I've heard, uh, I think there's a few things probably in process, you know, after a field's been around being doing stuff like this, people actually start getting interested in writing such books. So, I think we'll see, I mean, there's probably good stuff if you if you know good ones there, write in and say say ones you've enjoyed, I guess that would be useful. But uh, in terms of definitive things, to get us to where we are today, obviously things have been moving quite fast, but I suspect we'll see something coming in the near future.
1: Yes, definitely. Well, if you've got a question for Talking Machines, or if you've got a, a favorite book, or you feel like our books are wrong, tweet at us at tlkngmchns or email us at machines at gmail.com The guest this week on Talking Machines is Arthur Gretton, and he's a professor at the Gatsby Computational Neuroscience Unit, and he's part of the Center for Computational Statistics and Machine Learning at UCL. And when we got a chance to sit down with him, we asked the first question we ask all of our guests, how did you get where you are?
2: I'm actually, uh, my accent notwithstanding, Australian originally. <laughs> so I did my undergrad uh, in physics and in engineering at the Australian National University uh, in Canberra. Uh, then I went on to do a PhD in Cambridge, uh, working with Rolf Herbrick, who's currently mm. at Microsoft, uh, sorry, Microsoft at, at Amazon. So he, he was at Microsoft at the time when we were working uh, on our PhD. Uh, yeah, so then after that, uh, because uh, the work that I was doing was very much uh, in, in a good uh, alignment with what Bernard Schultkopf was setting up in Tübingen, I did a postdoc in Tübingen. Um, then I worked with Carlos Gestrin, uh, sort of combining that kernel toolkit with uh, his graphical model tools. Uh, and then I went to Gatsby, uh, where I uh, sort of undermined their Bayesian reputation <laughs> by being a frequentist.
1: <laughs> and you, you run a lab, yes?
2: Uh, so at Gatsby or at. You, you uh, have a
1: group, I believe. Yeah, yes, is yes, yeah, that's it? right.
2: Yeah, so no, I, I have a group at Gatsby. Um, so, yeah, and, and we're sort of working on. Yeah, sort of ways of, of looking at uh, various algorithms, so Bayesian inference uh, and testing in a very nonparametric way. Yeah,
1: mm, fantastic. And um, you you won uh, best paper award this year, or your your team did. Tell me tell me about your research that's uh, that won that award this year
2: yeah so uh, this was this was some really fun research, um, and it was a sort of last in a long line of research uh, but but so the work is on finding how well a model fits data. So obviously at the moment we have you know very complicated data and hence very complicated models. Uh, so it's quite important to know when and where your complicated model has failed. Uh, So our test is a test that does that. Um, It does it in the event. So when a model becomes complicated enough, it's hard to actually get uh, properly normalized probabilities out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, you can imagine uh, there's a combinatorial number of of possible combinations of events. Um, And then, you know, from this to get the probability of any given thing requires you to enumerate all these events. so we were able to test where a model fails without having to do that uh, enumeration, wow. without having to compute the probabilities, yeah. Nice. Yeah.
1: So uh, give us the title of your paper.
2: Ah, so I'm I'm very bad at remembering specifics, so it will <laughs> be something <laughs> like a linear time goodness of fit test. Uh, yeah. Excellent. Um, so that's that's the the uh, bullpark of the title.
1: And you said that this was the last in a long line of research. Are you planning on expanding on this idea, or are you taking a pivot?
2: Ah, so I, I think... The, this sort of realm of, of testing where a model is, is very complicated or where data are very complicated, like that is uh, something where there's sort of lots of very fruitful directions to go in. Um, so, uh, you know, certainly causality now is, is a very current topic mm. in, in fairness uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, in, in, uh, also in, in things like reinforcement learning because you want to have a causal model of the environment. You know, if I push something, it should fall over according to the laws of physics and, right. and so on. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I think that uh, this direction is, is one that I'm, I'm planning to sort of push you further. Yeah.
1: Fantastic. Tell me more about what your group is doing. Do you have any questions that you're specifically really excited about?
2: Um, so, uh, you know, sort of complementary to the problem of debugging your model is finding ways to train complicated right. models. Um, as uh, you know, we we saw in in the present NIPS adversarial learning is is extremely fashionable at the moment. Um, <laughs> you know, at, uh, to to um, I I think it the theory is catching up now with the successes that people mm. have seen in practice. Mm-hmm. So you know, within adversarial learning, there's there's sort of like you know refinements to the uh, I guess the code uh, on one hand, um, but then there has been some interesting work on. Uh, sort of understanding what it's doing and where it fails. And so that uh, direction is is one that I'm trying to think about. Uh, so recently, um, you know, we were looking at uh, if one, for instance, uses an adversarial loss to train a, a generating network that tries to generate images, mm-hmm. um, does that loss give the right gradient? Does it tell it like the right direction to improve in or does it actually have a bias? So it's sort of, you know, telling you improve, but it's off by some amount, which sort of makes you drift off to where you shouldn't be. Uh, So that's something that we're uh, like, we've, we've done very recently, yeah.
1: That's fantastic. Excellent. So, so the Gatsby unit is a very, as a very storied place to say, the, to say the least. Tell me about how, um, how your group fits into sort of the rest of the landscape over there and, and what you are, uh, working on as a community.
2: Uh, so yeah, so Gatsby is, is a uh, very storied, uh, uh I guess, uh, institute. Um, so, uh, it was founded by jeff hinton who of course is also you know a very uh, sort of fundamental uh, i guess uh, researcher in deep learning um uh, we are balanced between neuroscience and machine learning mm-hmm. which is quite unusual and and was sort of the spirit of nips uh before uh, cosine. Uh, yeah <laughs> sort of took took a lot of the uh, yeah computational neuroscientists away um, and I think, you know, the idea remains that uh, insights from neuroscience should inform uh, the machine learning and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting threads in computational neuroscience at the moment is understanding how the brain represents and models uncertainty. Mm. Um, so this is, I think, the chief area in which uh, my research and the research of others at Gatsby, like Manish Sahani, is, is presently sort of uh, meshing so his group and my group are currently sort of in, in lots of discussions about that, um, particularly since you know the tools that I use are sort of model-free uh, estimates of uncertainty, um, which might be useful because uh, if we don't know in advance uh, the the model the brain uses, we might still be able to get the baby
1: right yeah yeah, it has to be it has to be flexible enough to make discoveries yeah yeah so
2: it's like if we don't know what the model is but we only have the data right and we want to figure out how uncertainty is estimated uh you know just from what we see happening um then some of the tools that i'm working on uh, might be helpful for that um and so yeah
1: that's fantastic. That's excellent. So, so I mean, that seems like such a such a fundamental and um, uh, juicy problem. I don't know if yes. I feel juicy feels like a good word to, to I think that's use. a good word. I like it. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so in that, in this line of thinking that that you and your colleague are pursuing, is there a question that that feels like if if you could solve that or find a way through this question, that it would open up so many other doors?
2: One, I think, very challenging problem is testing for when things are conditionally dependent. So, so it might be, for instance, in the brain that the interaction uh, in processing between auditory and visual stimulus is uh, conditionally dependent on the circumstances mm. that the organism finds itself in. Um, this problem is very hard because, you know, uh, the, if the coupling between something depends on its input, uh, you know, every input that you see is different to every other. And right. so you can't sort of talk about correlations because, you know, correlations change with input. Or contextual, you see. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think this is a problem where there have been results, uh, but it seems still very open. Um, so I think understanding that problem more uh, is going to be like very like uh, fundamental for mm. pretty much like, mm-hmm. you know, all of, of neuroscientific modeling, causal modeling, Fairness uh, measures you know the, the ones that have come out in the last couple of years have right. been very dependent on having a good conditional independence test. Um, so I think that's that's something um, that that really will repay a lot of, of work. yeah.
1: Yeah, so so tell me more about the the work that we've seen in the last couple of years and around around fairness and also this trend around um adversarial work. Do you find that these trends um are are having an impact on the questions that you're asking, given the fact that they're sort of based around this intersection between um machine learning and, you know, meat intelligence <laughs> or how the brain works?
2: Um so I find that, so I, in in Tübingen, I was, uh, like, working in a, partly in a neuroscience lab, so Mm. in in Nikos Logotetis lab, um, and at the same time doing machine learning. Uh, So, I think that uh, it is very difficult to um, uh, reconcile or or to to, to, uh, work jointly in both areas uh, in a way that... um, allows you to uh, sort of gain insights about machine learning from the brain. So a much more common mode of collaboration is that neuroscientists have data (laughs) and they want to analyze the data. Um, And this, of course, is is its own challenge. And this is a very uh, fruitful area in which to apply machine learning. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think to sort of think of deeper insights about how the brain processes information arising from machine learning uh, or uh, to gain insights into machine learning by seeing how the brain processes things, like right. that's a much tougher uh, challenge. I've found at least that you know for the adversarial learning work, I think that uh, is sort of its own thing, and and I can't really see uh, how neuroscience and and that might work together. Yeah. Um, for causal modeling, I mean, this is perhaps where uh, the work that I'm uh, planning on with Manish might uh, then uh, be useful because. Yeah, there, there, you might really get insights uh, in how the brain, you know, the brain is—it's constantly uh, faced with these conditional uh, modeling tasks. Right. So yeah, we we might be able to then like use that to get insights. Yeah,
1: that's excellent. So um, I, I have to admit, I don't know much about Manisha's lab. is Is he a is he a machine learner? Is he a neuroscientist? Is
2: uh, so he is one of the rare people that really works in both areas. Oh so wow! He's, uh, yeah. So um, you know, and and he's done like and and is doing amazing work. Uh, for instance, in modeling the dynamics of the auditory cortex in oh, response wow. to like you know uh, inputs, and and so, yeah. So he's really using machine learning tools to get uh, valuable insights into how we process stimuli. Um, That's fantastic. Yeah.
1: Excellent. And so, are you? Is he? Um, are you at the phase where you are gathering huge amounts of data and, and sifting through it together, or are you planning experiments for for these for these contextual causality questions? Or
2: um, so he has uh, a lot of links with neuroscience community mm-hmm. both at UCL and at Stanford. Mm. Um, so I think we are not uh, short of data; like we have <laughs> a great uh, amount of data. Um, I think at the moment we're really developing mathematical tools uh, at this stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah,
1: excellent, fantastic. So, um, you're uh, you're on the board for ICML for 2018 coming up. Have you seen any trends this year around the work that you are interested in, the questions that you're asking that you're particularly excited about, or alternatively, things that make you say, oh my God, don't do that. Why are we even talking about that?
2: Um, so... I, well one of the topics that was in the air and I think uh yeah, Ali Rahimi articulated mm. very uh, mm-hmm. memorably was this idea that uh we should understand so Ali used of course you know uh, uh, the the metaphor of um uh, like I, I always say, Machine astrology, but it's is not alchemy. Uh, alchemy yes, Thank you. Yes. So, yes. astrology, of course, is is much more of a science. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, well, you know, astrology is is also something that uh, gave rise to astronomy in the right? same way that alchemy it gave could rise to been, glassblowing. it could have been so astrology. Have been astrology, right? astrology. Yeah, yep. Um,
1: <laughs> choose your choose your um, uh, proto-science. <laughs> uh,
2: as a as an anecdote, I was uh, given an ad on my Facebook feed uh, for astrology training. So, I think uh, <laughs> somebody at Facebook is is being a bit cheeky. Um,
1: <laughs> There's one graduate student twiddling everybody's parameters this weekend. I believe so, yes.
2: (laughs) Um, Yeah, so, but I I think a point that he made, uh, you know, within this talk, which I I found very valuable, is uh, that one should understand one's learning algorithms Mm. on a simple problem where you know what the answer is uh, to give insight into more complex problems. Yeah. So I think uh, in adversarial networks, uh, the benchmark is, you know, people squinting at blurry pictures of bedrooms. Right. Um, And... You know, at the moment, uh, I I think so, you know, an evolution of of this will be when we uh, develop a way of understanding, you know, models, generative model performance in high dimensions, uh, which is systematic and principled. Um, I I think a lot of people are working on that. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is, I I think, you know, um, and so... But I think what Ali was saying and a and, uh, reason he got this standing ovation was already very much in the air at NIPS, and he sort of like, uh, I guess, uh, condensed that. And, and yeah. Um, so I've noticed a lot of papers now which are sort of taking this principle in optimization, like really trying to understand where it works, where it fails. Right, yeah. Um, a nice example of this was there's this algorithm, Adam, which is used yes. by everyone everywhere. And a terrific paper uh, where they said, OK, like here is an instance where it's going to mislead you. Right. Um, so these these sort of like, you know, uh, rare features that sort of throw it off. Um, and and ble- it tries was to it follows. Ben
1: Recht's paper this year? Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. So
2: that was that was his group. And, and so that was, um, you know, so things like that where people sit down and say, OK, like, how am I going to break my algorithm?
1: Right. Um, yeah. 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 This sort of bringing the idea, kind of the, the, the fundamental idea of a scientific control sort of more into the process of creating these tools. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Um, so, yeah, so in, in fact, like a couple of years back, um, uh, so there was the AI stats conference mm-hmm. in uh, yeah, uh, which so uh, Christian Robert and I were chairing uh, that. And we wrote in our reviewer instructions that uh, reviewers should reward authors who have a section in their paper where they describe where their method goes wrong.
1: Oh, um, this is very so, good.
2: Yeah. So, like, you know, tell me why your me- where your method doesn't work and right, why. Right. Right. Yeah, so, I if uh, you know if I were the the uh, theory police, I would make that mandatory across <laughs> all my papers. But uh, yeah.
1: Did you find there was much uptake? Did you f- were there was there a higher percentage of authors who talked about how they broke things?
2: uh so I, I didn't notice any statistically significant oh, mm-hmm. increase unfortunately um but perhaps you know this this might be uh, i i hope it will be be more part of the conversation that people shouldn't feel afraid yeah uh, of saying where their algorithm breaks yeah. yeah
1: well i mean in in a lot of of uh academic fields that are um uh Traditional, I guess. Um, the, the the conversation around failure is is one that's very fraught and like doesn't happen a lot because people are highly embarrassed and also there's grant money on the line and you, you can't possibly be shown to be w- wasting time. So so how do we um, how does the community help to uh, uh, facilitate that here?
2: Mm-hmm. So. Perhaps, you know, the discussion around fairness is already sort of showing a path to that. It's Mm. like, you know, we have failed in such a, 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 you know, a damaging way um, that, uh, you know, this this will like perhaps, you know, cause society not to trust us anymore. And so uh, I, I think that when the consequences of not understanding one's failure modes are sort of clear. So high. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think a nice, uh, example, uh, which I think was in an Atlantic article, uh, a little while ago was in aerospace. Mm. So people have been designing planes for a very long time, mm-hmm. w- well before they were able to do, you know, finite element analysis and the, the, the modeling that they can do right. today. Right. Um, and so, you know, planes would fall out of the sky, uh, right. and people would then, there, there was a terrific mechanism put into place where, uh, you know, uh, uh, when a plane fell out of the sky, there was a procedure to be followed, like right. failure had a very uh, clear sort of path to diagnosis. Full to examination, fixing. yeah. yeah. Um, this article was very notable because it showed how the NHS in Britain was adopting the procedures that aerospace had used mm. so that when an operation failed and a patient died, Rather than the doctor defending their honor and saying, like, you know, it it was the nurse's fault. Right, Um, yeah, right. Another, I I think, nice thing that came up in that discussion was that the nurses were able to uh, challenge the doctors when they had forgotten a procedure. Mm. Um, And this idea that a challenge would be listened to and accepted even by a more junior person was valuable. So hopefully, in machine learning, the combination of the consequences and perhaps a system like they have adopted in medicine and in aviation might be a way forward
1: that's that's so fascinating because there's in those there's a there's an inbuilt uh internal system for accountability do you think that i mean is the community going to have to build its own system for for internal accountability uh
2: so i i hope that uh it does um i think you know the consequences of not doing so are, are more and more yeah. severe yeah um, because we're not playing games anymore we're creating systems that will drive our cars, diagnose our illnesses, and and so on. Um, So I hope that as the stakes sort of rise, it will become standard. People will say, like, you know, I I need to know why and where my model fails um, because lives are on the line. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And and so, you know, perhaps there will require some scandals, as we've seen already, uh, to prompt people to make those choices. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm hoping so uh another uh, i guess prompt in that direction is the eu law for you know uh, interpretable uh, machine decisions and so that might also help you know, you, you need to know where it's going
1: wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah the the internal community standards um, hopefully become uh, codified or mm-hmm. externalized in some way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. So uh, do you see... Um, what do you think organizations like, like NIPS and ICML can do to encourage that? Do we need to sort of have some sort of formalized discussion around it, or should we just sort of keep marching and having workshops on interpretability and hope that people suggest these topics to talk about? Um,
2: so I... At least uh, I think that if if in the reviewer instructions there is more Mm -hmm. uh, sort of explicit reward for, uh, you know, revealing one's uh, algorithm's weaknesses, I I think that will be, uh, you know, perhaps part of it. Uh, another thing which I think is is becoming the case is that code is being released like it, it becomes mm. really embarrassing if you have a complicated <laughs> algorithm with right. no code yeah um and you know this this uh reveals sort of a multitude of sins because uh you know when when the code is out there uh people use it and right. they discover for themselves yeah. uh it doesn't issues. work <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? yeah yeah um so i I think that you know this uh is 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 going to help a lot yeah um, I think also that we as a field ho- hopefully have been quite, uh, able to conduct like scholarly discussions, even where criticism, uh, has, has been the case. Um, so I, I think that, uh, you know, Ali Rahimi's the, the response to that was, was not sort of, you know, personal abuse and, and, uh, yelling. Yeah. There was, there was, of course, a big thread on Facebook, right. um, but I, I, find, I found that that thread was was a really productive one and a really constructive one. So, you know, I, I think that the discussion in the community has been good. Mm-hmm. Um, code release is going to help. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I think we are, um, yeah. What I would like to see is that um, code uh, release uh, as part of the review process should become mandatory so if a reviewer challenges uh, the code the code should have to be provided by the authors Uh, we did that for ai stats it was done in in the ai stats in the following year yeah whether that can be done at the scale of nips i don't know Mm. Um, but i really hope it is
1: yeah definitely and i mean these are these are uh these are tractable solutions these are immediate things that we can do to sort of codify these ideas that's really fantastic yeah Arthur Gretton. Really interesting to hear what he's working on and also just like amazing to hear about the history of Gatsby and and all the stuff that's going on there.
0: Arthur is like one of my favorite people. He has the best taste in food and <laughs> it, you just have to follow him to restaurants. But also he is an outstanding researcher. So actually I've known Arthur since he was a PhD student because when I was postdocing at MSR he was working with Ralph Herbrick who was postdocing at Microsoft and I, one of the things I love about Arthur is how little our view of the world overlaps, because he just comes at problems in such a different way from me, and he's absolutely stunningly brilliant. I think when I was a student, I was like, "Well, who is this guy, and why does he keep saying things I don't understand?" <laughs> and now I'm like, "Oh, Arthur said another thing I don't understand." <laughs> Fantastic, great pleasure to have him, and and another exam- example of someone who. Um, you know, he did his PhD here, he's uh, in the UK, he's, he, he went to the Gatsby. He did go to, he was in Tubingham for a long period of time with uh, Bernard Shulcott. And, you know, all those things come together to sort of, he, he's, well, it, it's actually a really nice example of why you need things like Ellis, because he's Australian originally, but he's here because of that ecosystem. That ecosystem that was, I would say, paramount in the world in those days. And the interesting thing about it now is we're writing letters saying, we're not up there yet you know yeah that's uh it's an interesting checkpoint for me to sort of think about whether that's true and what it all means
1: yeah definitely well that's it for us this episode i'm Catherine gorman
0: and i'm neil lawrence
1: tune in next episode